take your Bibles this morning and let's go to the book of Philemon. Philemon, if you find the book of Titus, one more book further back. If you go on to Hebrews, you went too far. Philemon, Hebrews, James, that's the order it goes in. And Philemon is just one short book, 25 verses, and uh, we're going to jump into this text this morning. When we come to, anytime I come to the end of a series like we did last week in Colossians, and before we start a new series, there's generally a break in between the two. I always kind of feel like a man without a country of where to go next. And, um, and so as we were thinking on it this week, this is where we chose to light, and I think it's appropriately so. Philemon is, um, as we said a couple weeks ago, it's the letter that was probably delivered with the letter of Colossians. Uh, to the church at Colossae delivered simultaneously with one together and they're written to the same group of people we're going to see very familiar names in this text that we're reading and it's written to the church there uh, that is in Philemon's house it's an interesting overview and insight into Paul's heart but I think in the midst of this story we find just a spirit of um, great humility and great service and gentlemanly behavior among men that are having maybe, well not maybe, but are, are facing some very tough conflict that can come. How many of you understand that conflict comes? It's going to come. The issue is not whether or not we're going to have conflict. The issue is if we're going to handle conflict in a Christ-like way. And so conflict will come, and how we handle it uh, reveals what's within us and what's going on, what God is doing through us. Um, over my years of ministry, this the, the most baffling thing is to watch people who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ or profess to believe it, um, who want to make much of Jesus Christ with their life, with their time and their talent, their treasure. They want to do that, and yet they seem to divide over the silliest and pettiest things. And not just divide, but we seem to find a way to get very vitriolic toward people. Um, and I, I'm thankful that our church doesn't have that spirit within it, but may we always guard that. May we guard it, may we walk very carefully around this, that our hearts will be hearts of tenderness toward people even who we might disagree with or may have done us wrong. Um, and so I, I, I think Onesimus and Philemon are a good test case for seeing how we ought to be responding. And Paul is going to talk to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus throughout this this uh, chapter. And so let's read the entire chapter together. It's all 25 verses. I ask you to follow along with me as I read aloud. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become more effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in you for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also of Christ Jesus, 
I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the word of God this morning. And Father, we ask you that you would take what is said this morning and that you would be honored in it, that you would work through us. And Father, that our hearts would be stirred by what we read, that our hands would be moved to action, and that, Lord, our minds would be affected by it as well uh, to believe this. And Lord, I pray that you do a work in us and through us. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. Onesimus, it's a continuation, again, as I said, from the book of Colossi, or Colossians. Paul says, Onesimus was begotten in my bonds. This is speaking, I believe, of Onesimus' conversion. That while in prison, Onesimus, who was a prisoner himself, meets the apostle Paul. And he accepts the Lord Jesus Christ as his savior. He becomes a believer and a new creature in Christ. And begins to grow and serve while in prison with Paul. And then Paul is now sending Onesimus and Tychicus back to Colossae. With this letter in his hand, back to his former master and saying, here's what you need to take to him. I can imagine this, the nervousness must have been in Onesimus' heart. As we read the text, we can see very clearly that uh, Onesimus had done Philemon wrong in some way. Uh, the, the context of it, we're not told what he did wrong to, to Philemon, but we get the idea that not only had he left him and broken off this relationship of servant-master, uh, and generally, that would have implied some debt that would have been owed as well in this culture. Um, but also, we get the idea that he has taken something else from him and that there is a greater debt still that, that should be there. He's left the area. Paul has admonished Onesimus to return to Philemon, and Paul sends a letter of reconciliation along with Philemon. And so we get the opportunity of reading Paul's mail here. We see the heart of Paul for his converts, his son in the faith. True Christian character does not in any way fear servitude, but rather embraces the opportunity to model Christ. 
Now, I want you to notice here how Paul addresses himself in the opening letter, opening of this letter. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Nowhere in this chapter do we find Paul referring to himself as an apostle. He doesn't say, Paul, the apostle. Now do what you're told. But he says, Paul, a prisoner. And he takes this low state as he approaches uh, Philemon. Paul addresses the letter to Philemon, to Appia, to Archippus, and then to the church. So this letter would have been read to the broad church at some point. And I kind of picture the, the, the letter going to Philemon, Philemon reading the letter, and then the letter kind of going out from there to uh, Appia and then to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And they're like, okay, well, we got to read it to the church too. And you can imagine what a spot it must have put Philemon on if Philemon didn't want to do what Paul said. Because now everybody in the church knows what Paul's asked. And, of course, Paul's heart behind this whole thing, he says, look, I know that you're not only going to do what I ask, you're going to do more than I ask. Paul was confident of the benevolence of Philemon's heart. And so he is asked to read this. Now, the context of the books must be set in the Roman Empire and their economy. The slavery of the Roman Empire was not the same as our Western slavery that has been the scourge of this country and many Western countries. That is not to say, though, that the Roman form of enslavement was some kind of God-honoring, Christ-centered institution either. Uh, it was a very vulgar and vile institution. And many, many, and really the majority of the population found itself in some form of servitude. And many would be bound, and we find, and some even speculate that Luke himself would have been at one point a slave. And many would put themselves in slavery for the purpose of getting an education and having uh, some type of employment, and they would put themselves in this bondservant role. But there was much injustice done to slaves during this system. The slavery had no part in God's original creation and will have no part in the new heaven and the new earth. Amen? That one day all of this will be made right. Many would criticize Paul, though, and have criticized Paul for not calling for an end of this slavery Paul, rather, though, gives clear instructions throughout his epistles to both the master and to the slave and telling them how to behave because Paul knew that the gospel was the antidote for any injustice that was being carried out. Both master and servant, when they take the antidote of the gospel, it will solve the problem. And Paul sends this message throughout the churches and begins to proclaim it. Paul opens the letter with thanking God for their prayer, thanking God for them in prayer. As Paul is always doing, he commends them for their spiritual growth. His words are always um, heartfelt. They're always familial in this arrangement. He said, our beloved and fellow workers, as he's talking of them. He said, when we thank God always in remembrance of you in our prayers... And he's, he's commending them in verse number 7. He said, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. He said, I'm looking at what you've done. He said, I, I, he said, he said, I'm looking around you and thinking of those people there in your congregation. And what a blessing that you have been to those people. You know, when we think of our congregation, we think of the people that sit in the room this morning, I would encourage you to look around and think of the people in this room, those that have refreshed your heart in the Lord, those that have been an encouragement to you in the Lord. Who have you not prayed for in this room? Who here is not eternally bound to you by the blood of Jesus Christ? Who here is not sacrificed self and property for the glory of God? See, the hearts of the saints 
have been refreshed by you. The thing that encourages my heart over and over again is when I hear somebody that's in a hard way, and then before we even know that they're going through it, somebody in the church has already started ministering to them. And what an encouragement and a challenge. And no doubt this was an encouragement to Paul in the first century to know that this church was ministering and they were doing it intentionally. And he said, Philemon, you have refreshed these people's hearts. Let me just say this. In a world of pain and division that we live in today, the gospel is still our only hope. The gospel always has been and always will be our hope. The gospel of Christ has the power to scale the highest social wall and bring together the most separated groups of people, regardless of the chasm that society says divides them. And here we see God taking through the gospel of Jesus Christ under the direction of the Apostle Paul and restoring people who had done one another wrong, taking master and servant and saying, now you are brothers. And putting them together in an incredible and in a beautiful way. And yet in an hour of division such as this, the church is tasked with modeling Christ, not fueling the fire. Paul states this, his privilege or ability to command. Paul said, look, I could command you to do this, Philemon. Look at verse number 8. He said, said, accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Paul felt like he had authority that he could say to Philemon, Philemon, you receive Onesimus back and do it now. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like a mom talking to kids or maybe a dad talking to kids. All right, you be nice to each other and be nice to each other now. How many times does that work? And enforced humility is not humility. Enforced love is not love. Enforced kindness is not kindness. There has to be something within us that wants to do this. And so Paul says, yes, I could command you to fulfill your duty here. But in verse number 9, he said, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I love how Paul puts this picture in our mind here in these words. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Paul weakened by years, beaten by the suffering he's gone through, he said, look, I'm asking you for love's sake to do this. Love of Christ that is in us, love of Christ that is for us, and the love of Christ that is through us to do the work that only God can do through us. You see, willing service, not forced participation, is the goal of any Christian ministry. There has to be a heart that is moved. And that's why the gospel is never about what you do, but what he's done. And now the Christian life is not about what you're doing, but what he's doing through you. That the gospel is bubbling up through us to accomplish this end. And if we would serve him from the heart, all three faculties of man must be engaged. You know, someone said this, and I think rightly so. You can buy a man's hand and pay him to work with his hands. And to a little lesser degree, you can buy a man's mind and have him create for you with his mind. But there is no amount of money in the world that can buy a man's heart. Nobody can buy the heart of a person. And the call of the gospel is that our mind would be engaged, our heart would be attached to what is going on, and our hands would be involved in the work. And let me say this, gospel ministry cannot be only one-dimensional. You can't say, well, I have a really heart for people, but my hands never do anything. You You can't say, well, I think about you all the time, but I really don't love you. 
There has to be a heart, a hand, and a mind involvement in what we're doing. And this is the root of all the love of Christ for each other, that we would do so with all that is in us. And Paul says, look, I could command you, but I won't do that. I would commend to you Alexander McLaren. If you've never heard of Alexander McLaren, I would commend his sermons to you. And McLaren has a a poetic way of writing, and and, uh, one of my preacher friends, he said, I always make sure that I don't read McLaren until the end of the week. Because if I read him at the beginning of the week, I'll just feel like I have to preach his sermon, because it's going to be better than anything I can come up with. But McLaren, he writes these words, he said, love controls the wildest nature. Authority is the weapon of a weak man who is afraid of his own power to get himself obeyed, or of a selfish one who seeks for mechanical submission rather than heart of willingness. Love is the weapon of a strong man who casts aside the trappings of superiority and is never loftier when he descends and no more absolute than when he pleads not from authority but appeals to love. That we would lay down the idea of you must to will you please. Would your heart be engaged in this? Would you desire to do this? You see, love naturally beseeches us. It does not command us. The harsh voice of a command is a simple imposition of another will and another's will. And it belongs to the relationship which the heart has no share. But our hearts as believers is not, you will do this and you will do it now. But our hearts as believers is, I pray you, I beseech you, I plead with you on this behalf. And this is exactly Paul's prayer. Paul is called to be a peacemaker and walks as a peacemaker in this hour. Let me say, we have a call as believers to be peacemakers between one another. We are called to set it right, those who are at wrong with one another. That we would go to them. Now, when I, when I say peacemaker, if your mind goes to a Dirty Harry movie and you're thinking of the peacemaker, you've got the wrong image in your mind. That's not what we're talking about, all right? We're talking about peacemakers that actually make people at right with one another. Matthew 9, 5 and verse number 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers. They're the children of God. See, if we cannot behave within the walls of the church, then how can we be peacemakers outside the church? We will not live without conflict, but we should endeavor to avoid the conflict and respond to it in a Christ-like manner. And we were talking this week, my wife and I, in Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. That as much as lieth in us, the King James says, as much as there is this hope within us, as much as we have the ability to do so, let's live peaceably with all men and not seek to be a conflict. And I would ask you this morning, are we peacemakers? I find oftentimes, if we're not careful, that we can, we can uh, what, what's the word, we digress from being peacemakers, and we become, at worst, instigators, and at best, referees. The church doesn't need a referee, and it definitely doesn't need instigators. We need people who are saying, here's what the gospel has done for us, now let's walk together. Look at what Christ has done. Let's lay down what is owed to us. Let's forgive. Let's walk. And so Paul seeks to make peace based upon the following principles that we can draw from this text. First off, the gospel takes the unprofitable and makes them profitable. Now, now this is something that is hard for us because 
I think if we are going to believe the gospel, we have to believe that God can take someone who is a sinner and destructive and make them profitable. And I, I think we have to believe that at the core of our being. And we can't get to the place where, you know what, I don't want to see that Onesimus again. He did me wrong. And if he ever comes back in here again, you know, and I wonder sometimes, who is that person's name that when it comes up to us, they're our Onesimus? And, and I can tell you personally for many years, and Brother Bob Ross is a pastor in Pennsylvania. I left there as a youth pastor, and we had a hard relationship break. And for many years, when his name was brought up, that was my Onesimus. Do you know what he did to me? And I had my argument built in my mind, never thinking of what I had done to him. Never thinking of the pain I had caused him. And that heartbreak in that moment, and there was every time that name came up, it was a reminder that something's not right between you and a brother in Christ, and something's not right between you and the Lord, because here's the thing, if something's not right here, something's not right here. And when this is right, then this can be right, and many years went by, and I would make attempts to try to restore, but it was just something sticking in my crawl, and through God's act of providence... About 10 years went by, and I could wish you to tell you that I was a quicker learner than this, but I'm not. We stood in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we shared apologies toward one another and sought forgiveness of one another, and he put his arm around my neck and hugged me, and I hugged him, and God restored a friendship that was broken or at least troubled, and that is the work of the gospel. To the gospel believes, and we must believe, that God can take what is worthless and make it profitable. What is unprofitable and make it profitable. I think it's so interesting here because I told you last week that Paul uses a play on word. The name Onesimus means profitable. And literally in this verse here, he's saying, I'm sending him back to you. Uh, in verse number 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. And, and the Greek behind this is formerly he was anti-Onesimus. And now he is Onesimus. And he's using this play on the man's name to say he is profitable to you. He is beneficial to you. The gospel takes the unprofitable and makes it profitable. The gospel acknowledges the hand of God in the pains of life. How many of you understand that God takes us through valleys so that he can take us to a mountaintop? So he can conform us more to the image of his son? And see, and all of this is woven through the text, is it not? And as we look at this, he says, look, in verse number 13 through 16, we see this unpacked. He said, I wanted to keep him here with me. He said, I wanted him to be my servant uh, during my imprisonment. Verse number 14, he said, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. And then verse number 15, for this perhaps is why. Now, let me just first off stop and say, I, I think it's amazing that Paul, the apostle, doesn't presume upon the providence of God here. He doesn't say, this is why it happened. And he goes, this is perhaps why it happened. This is perhaps why this happened, that he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, 
And he said, God has increased the relationship and the providence of God has brought around a deeper relationship than you would have had had this break never occurred. Now, that is not to say that God is in favor of our arguments, but it is to say that God uses us in spite of us, not because of us. And that God brings us through those valleys that he could bring a greater fruit out of it. The gospel acknowledges the hand of God and the pains of life. The gospel presents pain and mistreatment as an opportunity to model Christ. You see, you don't need grace for gracious people. You need grace for ungracious people. You don't need love for loving people. You need love for unloving people. I don't need patience with patient people. I need patience with impatient people. You see, it's an opportunity when the pain of disagreement or relational trouble comes along. This is an opportunity for me to rejoice in a chance to model Christ. In Acts chapter number 5 and 41, the apostles are leaving having been beaten for the cause of Christ. And what do they say? They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for his sake. And I think we would, we would probably rally to that occasion. If for some reason our government were to devolve to such a state where Christians were taken off and beaten for their faith in Christ, we would rejoice that we're counted worthy to suffer for his sake. But when somebody cuts us off in traffic, we don't rejoice so much. Or when somebody cuts their eyes up, what did they mean by that look? What, 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 what are they trying to say? Or someone makes a remark that we take the wrong way. We don't rejoice in those moments to be counted worthy to suffer for his sake. But nonetheless, it is still an opportunity to model Christ. Paul challenges not only that this is the case, but the gospel affects both sides of a conflict. Someone said there's always two sides of the story. Actually, there's three sides of the story. There's your side, there's my side, and there's the one that God knows is true. Because here's the thing, when I tell a story... It doesn't matter how objective I'm trying to be, I generally tell it from my perspective. And when you tell the conflict, you tell it from your perspective. And I'd be honest with you, if we were able to have our conversations and isolations, you could have both groups of people believing that both were right. And yet God knows the fact that, that our hearts are full of deceit. We have an incredible capacity to deceive our own selves. And Paul, Paul says, here's the thing. The gospel has to go to both. Onesimus, what are you supposed to do? Well, you've done him wrong. You should go back and face him. You should go back and seek forgiveness. Well, do you know what he did to me that made me do him wrong? Do you know how he treated me? You've got to lay it down. You've got to forgive. And you've got to go back and own yours. And this is what Onesimus is doing. He's taking letter in hand, yes, with Paul's peacemaking letter, but he's going back to confront the man he did wrong. No doubt as he's approaching this city, there must have been some butterflies in his stomach. As he's coming into this town, though he has that letter, and he's gripping firm to that letter, and let me just say this, as you come in, grip firm to the confidence of the gospel. Because here's the reality, it doesn't truly matter what men think of us, it's what God knows to be true of us. And so he walks into the city, but then he says to Philemon, Philemon, I want you to cancel the debt against him. This is a financial obligation that's being laid down. 
This is a restoration of a relationship that is being given back to him. He said, I want you to do both. And the gospel never looks at one side and says, you're completely wrong and they're completely right. The gospel always looks at both sides and said, the problem is is you have sin in your heart. The problem is you have sin in your heart. And what you both need is the gospel of Jesus Christ and it brings restoration. When both of you are walking under the cross, it changes everything. One counselor I know. I was reading, listening to his podcast on it, and he said, often what I'll do when I have couples that are arguing in my office, and he said, on one occasion in particular, he said, they were arguing very heatedly in my office, and they were going at each other, and I stopped them, and I said, hold on a second. They're like, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry, we shouldn't get so heated. He said, no, I'm fine with you arguing. I want you to keep arguing in just a minute. If you could, though, I want you to do something for me before you go back to arguing. He said, I both want you to picture in your mind that you're standing at the foot of the cross, And I both want you to look up and I want you to see a crucified Savior for both of your sins. And once you see that, then go ahead and argue. And it changes everything when we put it in the context of the gospel. You see, and so then the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is substitutionary atonement. It is the innocent for the guilty. It is laying down our life. And Paul is modeling it for us here in this text. If we truly place the wrongdoing on Christ's account... Has he not repaid us many fold? Has Christ not paid us back more than what we ever deserve? And and I I would say this to you, say, Pastor, which sins can I not forgive? Well, then I would ask you, which sins did he not pay for on the cross? And whatever sin that he hasn't nailed to the cross of your opponent, those are the sins that you and I have a right not to forgive. And we ought to walk in this boldness. And I am not saying to you that that is an easy course of action. I am not saying to you this is a one and done thing. But I am saying to you this is something we must begin to walk in and let God do his office work in our heart of exposing where the gospel has not taken root in our practical living of forgiving other people. This is something that has to be walked out. You see, what are we doing when we forgive? We place on Christ everything that the law demands. And we place on the offender only what grace can supply. Because it is only grace that will meet their need. See, what the law demands, you and I can't bear anyway. And our enemies can't bear. What they need is God's grace. The gospel is a substitutionary atonement. Now, this is not done mindlessly against the will of the individual, but rather true Christian sacrifice And Christ-like restoration must always engage the mind, the hand, and the heart. It puts it all in perspective and walks us through it. And so Paul says, I beseech you. A command will not do. Why? Because Paul says, I am weak and you're not inferior. Love must constrain you to Christian service. Love must constrain us all to this. What can I truly require of those who serve our Lord? This is something very important, I think, as a pastor and a minister of the gospel. What can be required of people who serve God that when in love with God, they would do freely without being asked? What can you require? You see, the the issue here is not getting people to do something, but getting people to see him. And when we see him and our hearts are in tune with him, we respond freely. So, Paul's peacemaker desires 
If we could sum this up, we would say it this way, lay down harsh words and hurt feelings. How much evil is done with the tongue? How much pain has been caused? Let me say the setting right and canceling even financial debt. Laying it aside. Often I've given this counsel and I'll give this counsel again to you. It is very, very poor idea to loan someone money you can't afford to lose. It's a very poor idea. Because what will happen is that loaning of money will come between you and a brother, come between you and a sister. It is far better to give freely than to hold debt over one another. And these are practical things that we know to be the case, and yet sometimes we walk in error against them to our own detriment. But if someone owes you something, cancel the debt. Lay it aside. Walk in generosity. Now let me just say to the other side of that party, your job is not to walk up and say, you should cancel the debt. I owed you that money, but I ain't paying you no more because the pastor said you're supposed to cancel it. Now as a believer who has offended someone or who owes someone, you have the responsibility to repay the debt. And to do so humbly and graciously and swiftly. And Proverbs would say, don't even let your eyes sleep until you make it right. And the proverb is to be so intense about repaying that debt that you just pour yourself into making it right again. So I challenge you on this on both sides. Paul wanted the restoration of parties who were separated by betrayal. Betrayal comes. Men will hurt us, and yet the gospel can and will and does restore. Paul said, let's receive one another in love. Why? Because we have something bigger than this. We're advancing the gospel ministry. The gospel must move forward. You see, Christianity, and this is something that I think in the whole of this little letter here, these 25 verses, what, what we're seeing and what I hope you can see even from last week's message is that Christianity is not a club. It's not a detached association of independent parties who pay their dues, but it is a family that strives together for the hope of the gospel, that we labor together in the work that God has called us in, and we do so humbly and patiently walking it out together. And I challenge us, never get the idea that somehow or another you have more in common with anyone than a believer. We are so closely united to brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a part of the family of God. Alistair Begg, I listen to him often, and he, he jokes, you know the song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. He jokingly says, I think we've changed that around, and said, I'm surprised you're a part of the family of God. The fact is, that ought not to ever be our heart. But as we walk together, we are seeking to strive for the hope of the gospel. Now, Here's the danger of laboring hard. As Paul had labored, and as we see Philemon clearly having labored hard in the gospel. And, and I love the play on words here that Paul gives him. <laughs> Paul says in verse number 19, he said, um, verse 18 rather, he said, if I have wronged you at all, or he owes you anything, charge it to my account. He said, I write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing even your own self to me. And he said, and don't forget, you owe me your life. And Paul shows the perspective here, and he lays that perspective out. Paul had labored long. 
Philemon had labored long. And I think one of the dangers of laboring and being passionately laboring in ministry is that we somehow or another, after having labored more and based on that labor, we feel an entitlement to command or rather to condemn those who have not felt the heat of the day in the master's field. And we look around and say, well, you're not serving like I'm serving. You're not laboring like I'm laboring. Why should I be kind to you? May I implore you this morning, by the grace of God, to lay down your authority and plead with love. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. I wonder this morning, is there an Onesimus that you need to take a letter to? And you need to go to an Onesimus and say, hey, I want to lay this down. I don't want it to stay between us. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word to speak to these issues in our lives. Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would take what Paul has admonished us this morning with, and that, Father, you would drive it deep into our souls. And that, Father, we would even model our lives in a way that says, I won't command, I'll implore, I won't hold a grudge, I'll lay it down. And Lord, may the gospel flourish in our midst because of the work that it has in our hearts. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask these things. Let's stand together and we'll sing this morning.